All right, we're going to be in Ezra. See, that's how I get oh, through that nice moment. Then I mock my assistant, and then we go from there, right? So stay where you are in Ezra 6, if you would. We're going to pick up in Ezra 7. If you have a Bible, or if you, if you need a Bible, there's one below you in the seat in front of you. And I can give you the cheat. It's page 393. We just sang these words. It's your breath in our lungs, right? It's your breath, right? Do we really believe that, right? Do we really believe that God puts the very breath that we have in our lungs? And if we did, right, if we believe that, if we truly believe that, then we would live out each day as if the very breath in our lungs is not even our own, but something that God has given us, right? And we would steward our lives let's say differently, right? Ezra chapter seven is kind of this beginning point. The last thing that you heard as David just read to us is the temple is now built and they've begun to worship in the temple. And so if you're, if you're here as you're our guest today, if you're, you're here for the first time, maybe the second time, you don't know this passage, the people of God led out of slavery through the desert into their own nation have come into their own place and, and built homes and built a space for worship and all this that God did for them and in them and through them. And yet, every step of the way, the people of God were unfaithful to God, right? And, and so God sends these men called prophets. He sends these guys who are highly unpopular with people, right? Constantly telling them how God is saying, listen, you're going this direction, you're doing this, God is calling you to do this, right? Turn around, give this up, do this. Or God is going to judge you, God is going to, to punish you. And, and, it, and it, they start ramping up, like God is going to take you and exile you into a foreign nation. You're gonna become slaves again. You were slaves once in Egypt, you'll be slaves again. And so God says, listen, you didn't listen, so I'm causing Nebuchadnezzar to conquer you exile you into Babylon, and they functionally become slaves again. And so a hundred or so years into that, God begins to raise up leaders who will return to Jerusalem, the city, kind of the, the, the capital city of the people, and the city where the temple, Solomon's temple, was built, the, the most beautiful worship space they had. But this has all been destroyed. And so God says, listen, I want you to be able to go back and begin to rebuild. And so the building of the building itself, or the rebuilding of it, is a bit of a metaphor for rebuilding their worship, right? If, if their worship had remained intact, if they had been faithful worshipers of God, they wouldn't have lost their worship space. They wouldn't have lost their building. They wouldn't have lost their home. But because they were unfaithful to God, because they worshiped idols, because they forgot about the God who rescued them, God allows them to be conquered, exiled, enslaved. And so Zerubbabel is this leader, his name actually means born in Babylon, is this leader that, leaves, that leads about 50,000 Jews back into Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. That's where we're picking up the story. The temple's been rebuilt and worship is taking place. And along each kind of step, what happens is they realize how they're not worshiping the way God had called them to. And so they fix that, they correct it. And we just heard from David, so now they're celebrating Passover. For them, Passover, it'd be like the equivalent of Easter for us. It's that celebrating of death passing over us. And so then we pick up today 
with this new phase with a new leader named Ezra. And I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Priorities. What we truly value is evident in how we live and raise our families. Is being godly and raising a godly family and being used by God of value in our lives. So let me say this again. What we truly value, what is most important to us, we will see it. It'll be evident in how we live and what we instill in our families, our children, right? How we live as a group of people, a family, right? The key grouping for culture is the family, right? The, the key set of relationships is the home, the family. How we, what we truly value will show up in our homes. If you have children, it'll show up in what you pass on to your kids. Is being godly, raising a godly family, being used by God, is that even of value in our lives? Sometimes they'll say, look at where you spend. That'll tell you what you value. I would say, look at your calendar. Look at what you give time to. That'll tell you what you really truly value. Look at what you commit to and what you do, and what you give your most of your heart to. So that's where we're going to pick up today. Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalem, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah. By the way, this is my seminary dollars, hard at work, right? <laughs> the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, that's the Japanese leader, the son of Abishua, I don't know. Son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. I don't know why that sounds that way to me. So here's what we get. We get an introduction to Ezra. And with leaders, what we often get is kind of the, the, the genealogy they come from. And, and it's less about a pedigree than it is that these are the people that God had delivered out of slavery, right? And so there's this direct line all the way back to a man named Aaron. Aaron is the brother of Moses, right? But in this case, what we do get, and, and oftentimes when we see these lists of names, these genealogies, these readings and numbers and names, we just kind of fly through them. But imagine God captured your name and put it there, right? Like you'd be stoked. Like if you're in the credits of a movie, I don't care what you did, you're a walk-on. You're in the credits though, you're staying for the credits, right? <laughs> this is the credits here, but it, it is, it's an introduction to Ezra but these people were important to God, and they're important to our story. And so there's this godly genealogy that we're reading about. So Hilkiah is the grandfather of Ezra. He was a priest who found some lost scriptures, scriptures that the people of God had lost, and then they let the temple rebuild or the temple repairs out of those. They re kind of established some of their worship. They found like, hey, this is a part of the scrolls that God had, had given us through one of the prophets, and we haven't seen this in a while. What does it say? And then how do we live that out? That's his grandfather. Then there's Azariah. There's eight generations before Ezra, was a godly prophet that helped carry out reform in Judah. So Judah is the nation. Jerusalem is the capital city, right? And so this eight-generation earlier man found that, hey, listen, we are off track. God has been calling us to return. He was a prophet. He's saying, here's what God is saying. And he actually led reform. See, there was, there's never just like a straight line. And there's never really just like kind of a straight line this way in our lives either, right? Like where we're just kind of going further and further away from God or even closer and closer. There's more of kind of a back and forth, right? We kind of ebb and flow in our faithfulness. Maybe we show up on Sunday, God does something, fires us up, and Monday we, we 
really kind of press into God. But then something happens by the end of the day at work, and it kind of gets us off track, and we're sidetracked by Monday night, and, you know, maybe Wednesday's our community group, and we kind of get back on track, but we have more of this squiggly line, right? And so Judah was like that. Sometimes they were better, sometimes they were worse. They were always, they always had this part of them that was disobedient and idolatrous. But there's never going to be like 100%. It's not like there's 100% of us. Even those of us that show up and put on a mask indoors and do this, right? You're not even going to get 100% of us to do the things that God is telling us to do. You're not even going to get me to do the things that God is telling us to do 100% of the time. Like, no, we're all flawed, right? So in this one season... This, this leader who's eight generations before Ezra leads this reformation movement among the people. There's Phinehas, which is 14 generations earlier. He's a priest who fought against heresy in the people, in the priesthood, actually. Eleazar, 15 generations before that, is the son of Aaron, became the high priest after Aaron died. He was the second high priest. If you know the story of Aaron, Aaron's first two sons died for being unfaithful. And this is the one that was faithful and became the high priest when Aaron died. And of course, his great, 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 whatever that is, 16 generations earlier, Aaron was the first high priest, was the brother to Moses. It's this lineage, right, that brings us Ezra. Verse 8, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So first we find out that Ezra has this history in his family of some godly leaders, right? That there's these, these pivotal people in the faith that he is a descendant of. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then we hear this. Ezra's a godly man, he's a, a scribe, means he writes, not everybody read and write then, right? He was a scribe skilled in the law, that's the law of Moses, that's the law of God, he's skilled in that. Then he's favored by God, it says the hand of the Lord was on him, and then it kind of gives us an outcome, like a, a therefore, right? Therefore, the king granted him all that he asked. And let's push pause for a minute. So Babylon has now been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. So the Medes had taken over, and then the Persians kind of came in, and we're in that place where it's the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Artaxerxes is king. Artaxerxes never followed the God of the Bible, right? But what happens is Ezra, who's faithful, Ezra, who studies, Ezra, Ezra who invests his life and what we would probably say is ministry today. That Ezra is favored by God. In other words, God's hand is on him because he's faithful to God. And it says that the king Artaxerxes also shows him favor. The outcome of all this is that the world that Ezra lives in, which is unfavorable to Jewish people for the most part, favors him. And God tells us it because of his faithfulness. So I'm going to put this on the screen. A godly lineage. <clears throat> Some families focus on worldly things, education, wealth, whatever. Others on godliness. Where is our focus today? Do we seek to produce men and women who are used by God? Let me say this another way. Where do we invest all our effort? Where do you invest it in you? Right? Where do you invest it if you have kids? In your children. Is our goal to raise godly men and women that God can use for God's purpose? Or do we have an entirely other set of goals? Well, we want to pay for college, or we want to do this, or, and, and all those things can work together, but what do we emphasize? What do we focus in on? 
What, when the world looks at us, what do they see us investing in, spending our time in, valuing? Verse 7, it says, And there went up from Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. So this will be the second wave or second group of returning exiles. The first group came under Zerubbabel. Their task, they were given by, by Cyrus a couple generations earlier, was to rebuild the temple, right? That they were going to rebuild the Jewish, the key Jewish place of worship. This is the second wave led back by Ezra, whose book is named by. Verse 8, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the hand of his God was on him. Notice the emphasis. God is with him. Verse 10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra sets his heart on studying God's word, right? Some of you have heard me ask this question, like, if you had all the time and the money in the world, what would get you out of bed? What would motivate you if you didn't have to get up and go to work for money? And so that freed up your time, and you had the money, you could do whatever you wanted to do, what would excite you? What would motivate you? What would get you out of bed every day to make you passionate about life? You've heard me probably ask this question, if you've heard me. It's because that was really how I got called into ministry. 20-something years ago, I was sitting in a men's group, this early morning men's group on a Friday morning, and this pastor named Pete, he asked this question of us. And I was sitting there, and I remember thinking, well, the thing that had made the significant change in my life was the Bible. And then if I could, I would teach other people the Bible. Now, bear in mind, my background didn't lend itself to that. So if you know me... That's why everybody else is laughing. If you don't know me, right? Okay, so my education, my background, nothing lent itself to that. But that's what had changed my life. And I said, you know, I'd want to teach other people the Bible. If you'd told me it looked like this, I'd have laughed at you. But here we are. There's this sense of that I wanted to teach people about the Bible. There, Ezra seems to grow up with that sense of that's what he wants to do. God puts this in his heart. He sets himself to studying it. He comes from a family that has done that, again, unlike me, he's a young guy who goes after this, and then he grows up to be a leader that God can use. Now, there's a pivot in this passage right here. All of this stuff takes place, and now starting in verse 11, what's gonna happen is we're gonna back up, and you're gonna hear more about what happens before that second wave of exiles. So we're gonna back up, right? Verse 11, it says, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters and the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. And I just want you to notice, listen to how Ezra is repeatedly described. He's a man who is educated in his faith, right? He's been faithful to God. God is with him. God is using him. And his education is there in his ministry or in, his, in godliness, in following God, right? So... Is he educated? Yes, of course he is. In fact, he's educated in things that don't necessarily add to his ministry. He can read and write. A lot of people in ministry couldn't at this point in time. Most of humanity couldn't at this time. I'm going to put this on the screen. So modern Christianity, what do modern Christians value the most according to their actions, their time, or their money? Is it godliness or worldliness, holiness 
or success? And what do we pass on? Again, if you don't have kids, we can just pause right there at that question mark. But then also, what do we teach our kids? Like, what do we truly value? When, we, when we're not sitting in church and we know the right answer is always Jesus somehow, right? When, we, when we're not there, we're looking at the landscape of our life, we're looking at how we spend our money, spend our time, what we do with things, what we truly talk the most about, what we're truly passionate about, what is it? And then is it truly godliness? Is it truly our faith? Is that what we're trying to pass on to another generation? Is a faith that will create a legacy? So here's the letter that Artaxerxes writes on behalf of Ezra. So before he leaves, he's still in, he's still in exile, but God is raising him up and the king, the emperor, over the entire pretty much developed world at this point, writes this letter on his behalf. Verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel, or their priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. So we back up before Ezra goes in, that we just kind of read about, that a bunch of people, Levites, priests, a bunch of people go with him. We back up there, and the king makes this pronouncement. If you're interested, you're free to go back. You're free to go with Ezra. Verse 14, for you were sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry silver and gold and, and, and that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, with the freewill offerings of the people and the priest vowed willingly for the house of their God, that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs and their grain offerings, their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. So the temple has been rebuilt. It's now up and running. There's worship taking place. In fact, as David read to us today, they celebrate their largest feast, their largest celebration, this eight-day Passover festival culminating in a feast where they remind themselves that when they were slaves, God came in and wiped out a bunch of people, but God passed over them. That death literally passed over them, and they celebrate that. They remember how God protects them, how God delivers them. And so they celebrate this. Then we pick up with Ezra. Ezra's taking a group of people, but here's how we get there. Artaxerxes writes a letter on behalf of Ezra. And he says, listen, you can go back to your people in Babylon that have been conquered and they've given free will offerings for you and you can take all that and here's your letter so that when you're traveling, because let's be honest, you're gonna be a Jewish group of people traveling through other lands and you're kind of low on the, on the ranking system. And so this letter goes with you to keep you and to protect you. So how is this different than the church and the world we live in today? Like, how do we see this? How do we see the position of the church in, in, a, in the culture we live in? And bear in mind, we live in America, in the U.S., that is called a Christian nation. I think we'd all pretty much say that's not true. The nation isn't Christian. It may have been started with some biblical background and foundation. Maybe it's been a Christian nation. Maybe it hasn't. But at this point, it isn't. Nothing that we do looks like a nation trying to honor Jesus in our life. And so what we have is a subset of people who are actually identify themselves by Jesus, we call the church. 
But the church, the position of the church in culture is different. You go back 100 years and people built communities around churches. The church was this central place where people would go. And they would go there. Their marriage is in trouble. We'll go to the church, right? We're struggling. We need food. We'll go to the church. We'll go in and we'll help. And, and, and this was a place that literally that became this, a, a very much a focus and pastors held good positions in, in the community and society, and they were trusted. And then the 80s hit, right? And, and all the televangelists and all the craziness that are found, you know, stealing from churches and sleeping with prostitutes, and, and the place of the church just tanks. And then the 2000s come, then the politic, can never say this word, politicization, the church became too political, whatever it was, right? <laughs> politicization, I don't even know, man, I can't even... Good thing I don't speak for a living. Uh, so the church becomes divided politically around social issues, around economic issues. But what really happens is an idolatry gets embedded in the church that politics can fix something. Right? Think, oh, you know, if we just get the right person in office, we'll fix everything. Right? And we lose sight that it's Jesus. That the only one we worship is Jesus. Not red team, not blue team, not the next election. Not mask, not no mask, right? Then we worship Jesus. Not vaccine, no vaccine, whatever, right? Insert political component here, right? We lose sight. And so fast forward to our day today and the last 18 months of COVID and what we've seen is the church highly divided and arguing online just as loud as anybody else. And they look more like the political parties they belong to than they look like Jesus. Fair? So where's our position in society today? It's been relegated to a subset of a voting block. Ezra is being sent by the most powerful man on the planet with a letter and money loaded down with gold and silver and gifts and food and, and, and animals. And he's going with the most powerful man's signature saying, don't touch his stuff. He's going because I said he could go. He has this position in the community, in, in the world that he lives in. We don't. Why? Is it because we value other things and not godliness? Now, bear in mind, let me just throw this in because I know somebody's thinking this, right? Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. I know. We've talked about persecution. In this world, you will have tribulations, right? That you will suffer things. But Jesus is talking about suffering for looking like him, and he primarily is talk, talking about suffering from other religious leaders who are the ones who actually get him executed, right? We're studying Acts. We'll be here tonight again at 6. We're working through Acts. Tonight, we look at the section where the first big martyrdom takes place. And, and we look at the death of Stephen, right? Who is killed by who? Religious leaders. Jewish religious leaders, right? A lot of the, the problem comes from within the faith at that point not from the community they live in. In fact, at that point, a lot of people, a lot of Roman leadership just kind of wash their hands of Jesus and aren't trying to be in opposition to Christianity. So when I say that today, we live in a nation that is supposed to be friendly to the gospel. We live in a nation where most people have a favorable opinion about Jesus. But we live in a nation where most people don't have a favorable opinion about us, and it isn't because we look like Jesus. We need to wrestle with that. It's because our values are everywhere else, right? Verse 18, 
Whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do with the rest of your silver and gold that you may do according to the will of your God. Like, you've got it. I entrust it to you. Here's a letter. No one's going to touch you. Do whatever God tells you to do with it, right? Verse 19, the vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. So literally Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on the planet, leading the Persian empire, right? This guy says, listen, man, I'm going to fund your ministry. Go back and do it. Now, again, I want to say this. Artaxerxes never follows the, the God of the Bible, he never becomes a follower of God, but he does fund Ezra's ministry, right? He does fund the things that Ezra desires to do. And what Ezra's doing is he's returning back to Jerusalem to take the people of God who are now beginning to worship, but they're a little off track, maybe a lot off track, but they're beginning to worship God. They're kind of pointed the right direction, but they're still missing it. And Ezra's that guy. He's the guy, and he comes from a long lineage of people that, that want to help God's people kind of reform and fix and, and get back on track. Kind of a lot like we've been talking about lately, of where is God calling us to be? Like, where are we over here and we need to be here? Where are we off track? Even if we think we're doing the right thing, but where might we be wrong? And how do we get back to where God would have us? Verse 21, it says, And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Now, if you remember from last week, if you were here, it was the people beyond the river, which end up being Samaritans, right? It was them that was persecuting the people who were building the temple. They were the enemies of God's people. So listen to this with that in your mind. And I, Artaxerxes the king, reasserting his name and his authority, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, to those people, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Hey, you know the people you've been persecuting? And I told you not to? And then I made you fund their rebuilding of the temple? I'm sending a new leader. Whatever he needs, you also give him. Why? Because Ezra is on track with where God would have him to be, and God is giving him favor, right? So he says, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Verse 23, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in the full for the house of God in heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So not only is Artaxerxes funding Ezra's ministry, but he's having the people that have historically now opposed God's people, he's having them fund future ministry. And all this goes with his authority and his weight, though he never worships God. So if God continues to do these things over and over again, right? Cyrus sent back Zerubbabel. Right after Zerubbabel came another Darius, right? And then Xerxes, and now Artaxerxes. And each time they've had opposition, God keeps giving them favor. They're doing what God has called them to do. God keeps giving them favor, right? When they run out, it seems like God keeps funding their ministry. When people oppose them, God allow, just kind of allows them to work through the process. But when they stay on track, God kind of puts the opposition away. Keeps paving a way for them. Shouldn't we learn something from that? Right? Like, shouldn't we see this as, at minimum, a pattern? When God's people stay faithful to the mission that God has given them, that you're going to have some struggles, you're going to have some opposition, but if you stay faithful, God will carry you through that. Right? God will get you through that. In fact, it seems like whenever they're faithful, 
God does beyond get them through it. Shouldn't we take that into our personal lives? Hey, this is what God has called me to do. Live a life of faithfulness and purity and and holiness. This is what God has called me to. And no, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to achieve this fully. I'm going to make mistakes. But shouldn't we live to that no matter how hard it is? Knowing that over and over again, God honors that. That God honors our faithfulness, provides for us when we're faithful, overcomes the opposition, the struggle, the temptation, the sin, the addiction, the whatever that God carries us through. Shouldn't we learn from this? Couldn't we learn that godliness produces favor with God? Now, don't mistake this. Your good works don't make God love you, right? God already loves you. If you're in Christ, you are, you are God's chosen believer, right? If you're in Christ, you're saved, you're rescued, you're born, whatever you want to call yourself, you're a follower of Jesus. He already loves you. But we're talking about God's blessing on your life. Is he going to bless you if you're running the other direction? No, he's going to wait till you come back, right? But when you're on track, doesn't he seem to bless those who stay faithful, who remain on track? That doesn't mean we won't waver. Again, it's never a straight line. It's never that simple. We always make mistakes, but it's repentance. It's refocusing. It's getting back on track. It's returning to what God has called us to do over and over and over again. And when we do that, historically what we see is God's favor on those people. Shouldn't we learn a lesson from that? Verse 24, he says, this is, again, Artaxerxes in the letter, we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, and other servants of the house of God. It shall not be lawful to oppose taxes or tolls as they cross through your land. Like I gave them the money and I don't want them spending their money on you. You let them go by. He just goes the extra step, right? You don't even have to pay for the things you're going through. And then when you run out, those people that have been the biggest pain in the butt, they're going to pay for it right? They're going to fund your next step. Verse 25, he says, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, in other words, the word of God, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and those who do not know them, you shall teach. This is an amazing verse. First off, the people beyond the province, people beyond the river, They're the enemies of God's people at this point. Here's what he says. You're to appoint leaders and judges, even to judge the people in the province beyond the river, even to judge the people that have opposed you. You're going to put leaders over them, Jewish leaders, people that know scripture, people that follow God. That's what you're going to put over them, right? Verse 25, I want to read this again. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, according to scripture, appoint magistrates or leaders, governors, and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, the people that have been a a problem to you, all such as know the laws of your God, no scripture, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Ezra gets to live out his calling. Ezra gets to live out his desire. His desire, he studied the law of God. He wants to pass this on to others. Ezra's a one who wants to teach other people the Bible. That's what we learned about him early when we learned out why God is sending him. He's, yes, he's faithful, but he's also equipped for this. This is the passion that God has put inside of him is to pass on the faith to others. 
And so Artaxerxes says, listen, I want you to put good leaders, godly leaders, not punitive, punishing leaders over them. I want you to put people that are wise according to scripture who are going to lead them well, right? We don't go do to them what they did to us, right? That sounds kind of like how we live today. No, go put godly people in charge of them, right? And then when there's not enough godly leaders, magistrates and judges, right? Then teach people, make more godly leaders. So I'm putting this up. If we were in charge, right? If, if we were put in charge today, if we could reshape the government and judicial systems, would we put in partisan people or godly people? Would we value biblical leaders? Let's just take a snapshot of the last like three or four, whatever Supreme Court justices it's been. And then the last few nominees for president on both sides, right? Is the church out there championing godly people? No, right? Super quiet. No, probably not, right? Are we choosing godly people to lead our nation, to, make, to, to kind of judge our laws and do those things? Or are we choosing partisan people? And I know, I know somebody's sitting there, but like my team is more godly than the other team. Let me just say no, they're really not, right? They're different ungodly, but they're still there, right? But again, when we think through that lens, we settle for those people. Ezra's told, hey, listen, put godly people in charge. Put godly people in charge of the people that have been a problem to you and put godly people in charge of your people. There should be godly leadership. That should teach us something. Verse 26, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Put godly people in charge and then whatever judgment is necessary, let them lead that, Right? Whether that's a death penalty or a penalty of some other sort, confiscation or, or, in, or putting in, incarcerating people, whatever it might be, right? Let them lead. Give them the authority. Give them the power to do this. I know when we see passages like this, especially in the Old Testament, we have a tendency to ask, like, why so severe a punishment? Like, why are we putting people to death here? Why are we doing this? Why are we confiscating their goods? Right? There's this sense of, like, why is everything so serious, Right? And a lot of times when we ask that question, we're kind of juxtaposing the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're kind of contrasting them as if they're different, as if one is not the fulfillment of the other, as if they say different things and they don't. But the penalties here, especially in Israel, especially when it's God's people going by God's laws, can be very severe. But what, there's, what they've been taught is, listen, better a severe penalty here than a severe penalty forever. You see, the gospel is that message, right? That God created us, designed us, made us, gave us a way to live. We kind of short form that here at Generations. It's called, he designed us to be worshipers. That doesn't mean people who sing songs of worship, though it does include that. It means living lives that glorify God. It means that everything we do, we seek to glorify God in our lives. That's how God made us. And we all know we've all failed that, right? Sinners in human history, none of us have kept that. And God could rightly just let us go running headlong into hell as we would. But instead, God, out of love, out of mercy, out of grace, out of generosity, out of benevolence, out of kindness, out of goodness, decides I will come and rescue humanity. And so Jesus, God, becomes human, becomes flesh. He lives the life we're called to live, but we fail. 
And he becomes our sacrifice, our trade, our penalty, our substitute. As he dies on the cross, he becomes the sacrifice, the death penalty for us. The very thing that we should, we should have to die from, the thing that we should die from and be separated from God forever, he becomes the payment for that. And as he is laid in a grave, we are reconciled to God. For those of us who are in Christ, we are reconciled to God. So I said, you don't have to do good things to make God love you. God already loves you. But Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life. He ascended to heaven to fill us with his spirit, to empower us to a new life. And then he called us to a mission. See, if it was just about getting us to heaven, which is what a lot of Christians think, well, we get forgiveness and heaven whenever, then God would take us now. But instead, he calls us to live for him. That this life, though it may have struggles and pain and tribulations and problems, that we are to be here until the end, that we are to be a witness for Christ here on earth so that others can hear the message of the gospel. So we remain and we endure and we live here in this broken world and we do so with a, with a singular focus of the mission that God has given us. That's how Ezra lived. That's how Jesus lived. Better example than Ezra but that's how Ezra lived. He lived with a singular focus of what God had called him to. And now God is using him because of that. He's returning back to Jerusalem so that he can lead the people, help them get more back on track. They've started to worship again. Now he wants to focus them on the worship that God has given them. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why so severe? Why so, why, so, why so big a penalty? Because the other option is worse. Being separated from God forever is worse. So Jesus came to live it and then to sacrifice himself for us. So if we come to faith, if we, we come to Christ, if we're in Christ, then that penalty has been paid for us. That death penalty has been satisfied. Romans 5 goes on and says earlier, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That God shows his love for us, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? You don't do something to make God love you. God already loves you. All you do is receive what God has done for you. You, you take that penalty paid by Christ and you allow that to forgive you. you. You let his resurrection give you new life. You surrender to the filling of the Holy Spirit and the promise of baptism that we're made for more than this. And then we begin to live for God. I was asked a question this week, a friend and I were talking and like just kind of looking at the church and how do you know, like how do you know if you're a Christian? Well, how do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you're really truly in Christ? Well, your life will be different. Your life will not be the same as before you were in Christ. Your life will be lived differently. You'll be empowered differently because of Christ, because of the spirit. That's the promise of our faith that you who are born again, born spiritually, who were once dead in your sins are now alive in Christ, that you will live transformed lives. And that if we live for 100 years, it'll be 100 years of changing because we'll never get it all right. But you will be transformed. Might not look like it day one, but a year, two years, three years down the road, you should be different. Because if you truly are a follower of Jesus, then the number one thing in your life is Jesus. You follow him. And if you follow him, your life will look different. And your life will look different not because of your works, because of the work that he has done inside of you. So how do you know? You'll see it in your life. We'll close with this. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, 
to the beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of my Lord, the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Here's how Ezra closes out the section right before where we began, where he leaves for Jerusalem with many new leaders and people. He says, blessed be the Lord my God who made all this happen. He knows it's not his good works. He knows it's not his goodness at all. He knows it's God. He tries to stay in a place where God can use him, yes. But he knows it's God. And so he praises God. He knows it's not Artaxerxes. He knows it's not human strength or power or human influence. He knows it's not. He knows it's God. Do we know? Will we put ourselves in a place to where we know that our life is being lived out for God, that God might live through us, that we might be on such a mission for God that the world around us will begin to see Jesus? Yes, when we speak about him, but even in the daily lives that we live, will we raise children who will follow Jesus first and whatever else happens after that? Will we do that? That starts today. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are first and foremost God who became flesh for us and saved us. We will know we're followers of yours. You said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. They'll know you're different because you'll be different. You'll look more like me and less like the world. And so we just kind of short form that here with just like, we'll be transformed to look more like you. That's a process, our sanctification process will take all our lives. It will be complete when we stand before you in eternity. But between now and then, let us live, live, let us live lives that are constantly transformed, that are being changed by you and for you to look like you, Jesus. Help us to follow the historical witnesses of men like Ezra. He's not the hero of the story, Jesus, you are. He's just an example of someone who followed you. Let us become those examples. Let us pass that on to our children, to our families, to the generations that come after us. We stand on a witness of the history, the historical generations before us, and, and even the generations of living people, our parents and our grandparents who passed on a faith to us. We stand on their shoulders, and our job is to be the next generation, the link in the chain to reach the next generation for you, Jesus. Let us live lives that will allow you to use us for that purpose that you've given all of us. Jesus, you loved us while we were still sinners. You didn't wait for us to get fixed. You came to fix us, to restore us, to redeem us, to remake us. Jesus, we love you. Let us follow in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.